This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Glad you're with me. You know, I have to admit, I don't really have any idea what interests people when it comes to public policy. No, I know what we say when pollsters ask a question. But you know what? There's not much sign that our interest extends to public policies that impact the very things we just said we care about. I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. I'm also going to talk to Capital Light Research's Nick Otten. Now, I think he's going to be of special interest to those people who want to get a lot more than 1% or 2% yield in their investments, but without taking a lot more risk. And I'm sitting back trying to figure out whether my quote of the week or the Goofy Award is going to get more people angry. But I also bet some people will be nodding their head in agreement. So stay with me. But first, you know, when it comes to public policy, I do not pretend to know what people care about. And I'll give you a quick example. Not many seem too upset about the well-documented sec- documented sexual harassment in the military. This is despite the Me Too and Time's Up movements. I would have thought we'd hear way more people upset with the fact that none of the 10 recommendations from the 2015 landmark report by retired Supreme Court Judge Justice Marie Deschamps that concluded that sexual assault, harassment, bullying were endemic in the military, but none of those 10 recommendations were acted upon. Then in 2018, when documented sexual misconduct charges were leveled against the head of the military, General Jonathan Vance, the government did all they could do to bury those charges until a report by Global TV in February this year made them impossible to ignore. But my point is, we didn't hear any outcry there. But as I said, I do not have a clue about what people really care about. I'll give you another quick example. Children. I mean, don't we always say children of the future, we care about them? Well, this week, a Pew Research poll found that 68% of Canadians think our children will be worse off financially than their parents. Only 27% said better off, but it barely rated a peep. I mean, even if that. Neither did the story on Thursday, new data from Public Health Agency, that made it clear that children who suffer or suffered far more from the pandemic restrictions and lockdowns than from COVID itself. To top it off, They get to inherit all the debt accumulated over the last two years. And surprise, surprise, guess who suffered the most? Well, it's children with intellectual, behavioral, and emotional disabilities. But again, basically, we didn't hear a thing about it. I thought we were supposed to care about children. The most common reason offered up, by the way, for our lack of engagement is that unless policy impacts us directly, we don't care. Well, here's the problem. We don't seem to make the connection between policies and issues we say we do care about, something like affordable housing or wages, jobs, cost of living. And I kind of think that not many in the media covering the politics uh, seem to make that connection either. But as Anne Rand said, we can evade reality, but we cannot evade the consequences of evading reality. Quick examples, affordable housing. Most of us don't seem to make the connection that the government policies on all three levels add literally tens and even hundreds of thousands of dollars to the cost of a new home. I mean, we cry about affordable housing, but we don't get that regulations like zoning, environmental reviews, slow approval process at the municipal level limit the supply necessary to meet the continued increase in demand. And it adds huge amounts to the cost of a new home. And we got a forecast now of 1.2 million new arrivals to Canada over the next three years. Well, those cost pressures aren't going to ease. But few people seem to care that there's no coordinated housing policy at the federal and municipal levels. My point is, we can ignore the role government plays, but we can't escape the consequences. Same with high gasoline prices. Yeah, we got a lot of people who complain about them, but they don't seem to appreciate, and it depends where you live, but about a third at the price at the pump is a direct result of taxation and government regulation. Heck, Vancouver has the highest gas taxes in North America. Another example. MNP survey this week found 45% of Canadians don't think they can make ends meet without going further into debt. Yet it seems like, really, most of us don't seem to appreciate that we send more money to government. It could be in GST or a property tax or a liquor tax, a gas tax, cost of a tariff, income taxes. In BC, you've got the carbon taxes, not quite as much in other provinces, because in BC, there's no rebate for the vast majority of people. But we also got payroll taxes. Oh, there's so much more. Well, we spend more on that stuff than we do on food and shelter combined. What about business tax increases? Well, again, I don't see that many people make the connection that they get passed on to the consumer in the form of higher prices. 
who sit there chanting for higher taxes on business and don't get, hey, guess who pays for them? Shareholders, and that could be your pension plan, or you right at the cash register. That concept seems especially difficult, by the way, for people who are concerned with high rents. When you hear increases in property taxes or maybe a utility increase, there's other things too, but they get passed along in the form of higher rents whenever possible. Business taxes also impact our wages. I mean, there's a huge body of research that concludes that raising corporate taxes, as some politicians push for, puts downward pressure on salaries. I mean, it's not tough to understand. The more money that companies have to send to government, the less they have for wages. A final example. Most Canadians say they are concerned about jobs, yet don't seem to make the connection that capital investment is the key component to job creation. I mean, if people aren't, and companies and whatever, are not going to invest their capital, well, you don't get more jobs. So proposals to increase taxes on investments, and it could be like capital gains, are a disincentive to people taking the risk and investing their money. Presto, fewer jobs. So yes, it may be a fact of life that people don't care. Don't care about public policy unless it directly impacts them. But the reality is, a heck of a lot of those policies do impact them directly. We just don't see the connection. Michael Levy joins me on the line. Mike, thank you for taking the time uh, on what is the beginning of a wonderful weekend. Well, it is, Mike. And, you know, I I was listening to your editorial, and we did chat for a moment during the week about how uh, economic uh, attitudes are improving in many nations, even as the pandemic endures. And there's a Pew poll, and I think you referenced that in your editorial, uh, Pew being just the major, major research company in the world. They are one of the most respected polling companies in the world, and um, they came out with a a conclusion about economic attitudes improve in many nations right now, even as the pandemic uh, endures. But going forward, they are the 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 poll the people who took the poll uh, are worried about very worried about uh, the fact that the next generation after ours and generations after that will be worse off financially than we are today. And along with a dim view of Canada's economic future, more than two, and by the way, Canada's economic future is looked at as being negative by 68% of respondents, two-thirds of the respondents of the Pew poll view their children when it comes to an education, economic outcomes, will be worse off than their parents. The states, the U.S. is at 68% view it that way. And the most uh, pessimistic public surveyed are France and Japan, where 77% say children will be worse off. This is something that I've been concerned about for a long, long time. But my view of it was our children will be okay and possibly a part of the generation or, or of the next generation. But going forward, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren are going to be much worse off than we are today. The Pew Research Poll has brought that forward. They're saying the next generation. Yeah, it's interesting. There's also a poll this week by Maru Blue uh, that was released. And they said 76% of Canadians are worried about uh, government debt increase. Maybe that's why. I mean, the Pew Research Poll didn't get to why do you think why do 68% of Canadians think that their children are going to be worse off than their parents financially, and only 27% think they're going to be better off? They didn't ask why. But here's maybe this is an overlap there that 76% of Canadians are worried about the debt increase that we all know is going to get passed on to our kids. And by the way, 75% worried about raising taxes because our kids will pay a higher level of tax than their parents did. So there's a lot to the kind of attitude that may be behind this. And, Mike, I like the idea of linking the two. I mean, here, here's the poll. It gives the results. But when you just dig a little bit deeper, scratch under the surface and take a look at public debt, particularly here in Canada, the way we are just piling it on, and then just think, extrapolate that to when people are polled, that has to be one of the reasons that are forefront in their minds. And, you know, there, there was, this is just terrific. Uh, there was a text that I read in this past week and talking about generational uh, uh, the, or, or generations uh, going back to uh, generations before us and going forward. And um, there was a text by Sheikh Rashid Ben Saeed El Maktoum, 
which won't mean much, but he was the founder of the country of Dubai when they started uh, working out the Emirates. He was the founding sheik of the uh, of the country of of Dubai, and uh, when he was asked about the future of his country, he replied, and this is so important. He said, my grandfather rode a camel. My father rode a camel. I ride a Mercedes. My son rides a Land Rover. And my great-grandson is going to ride a Land Rover. But my great-great-grandson is going to have to ride a camel again. And if you just picture what he says, that visual about where we were going, marry that to the poll about what people are thinking, not just in Canada in the U- and the U.S., but worldwide about are our children going to be better off? Are our grandchildren going to be better off? This, this saying of his gives me great worry because if you go back to World War II, Mike, and then go forward from there, every generation was better off than the generation before it. We are probably going to hand off a better generation to our children, but with the worries that you were talking about that I've just discussed, I am deeply concerned about our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, and this Pew poll shows that most of the world has the same worries. Yeah, it is interesting. Only two countries didn't have that. Like in Sweden, only 43% said it was going to be worse off. And I think Singapore is the other, where only 35%. But every other of the 17 countries uh, that they polled, you know, had a more dismal financial future in mind for their kids or their worries are around that way. I mean, there's, it's a huge issue and it goes around, uh, you know, it could be technological change. I think there's a real feeling, though, of uncertainty out there that's getting translated this way. And, but I'll come back to this, Mike, that I said in the editorial. I can't believe that we're not talking about this kind of an issue more. When we talk about issues that are of concern, and I'm not saying anyone should share the same issues I have. This is an issue for me. You've said it's an issue for you. So I'm not saying, oh, you're wrong because you don't have that issue. I'm just surprised that more people aren't concerned about the issue. And sorry, I'm going on, but I'll give you a couple of other stats. It's consistent with other things that maybe people don't make the same connection with. The fact that our research and development is half of the U.S., well, that's a direct relationship to future earnings. The fact that our Innovative uh, Cities report that came out last week showed that only two Canadian cities were left on the top 100, and they had dropped dramatically. Calgary and uh, Vancouver completely out of the game there. Uh, But there's others. It's capital investment that we've got the worst in a generation, that we've fallen to 23rd in the ease of doing business, that we've fallen to 13th in competitive ranking. All of these uh, spell a more uncertain and maybe a bleaker future for our children. And I'm just shocked that it's not on the public agenda. Uh, well, you know, um, the, the, the sheik went on to say, and you, you, you can uh, maybe not directly correlate, but there is correlation between uh, what he said <clears throat> when he carried on this conversation. And his reply was, hard times create strong men. Strong men create easy times. Easy times create weak men. Weak men create difficult times. Many will not understand it, but you have to raise warriors, not parasites. Well, that's a little stark and dramatic, but what he's saying links right back to what you're saying is that we just don't care anymore. We are not paying attention to uh, the catalysts that are going to put us in that position, and we are not standing up. We are not talking about it. We are not taking action. We are not being warriors. And in it, and this is a strong word, you might want to use a weaker word or, or a word not so strong. Are we creating generations of parasites because of the way we're being governed, because of the way we're being taxed, because we are now saying, I don't have to do it. Government's going to do it for us. A new report by public, the Public Health Agency cited significant disruptions to the daily life of the 99.9% of children who were never hospitalized with COVID. It suggests that the other disruptions may have had a more dramatic impact on the well-being of children than the actual disease itself. Uh, just an interesting number, 8,139,512 children of all ages nationwide out of that, there is only 1,388 were hospitalized with COVID to date. 
So they're talking about other issues. But here's the thing that I took note of because it's so typical. So who suffered the most? Well, it was children who have intellectual disabilities, emotional challenges. And yet, uh, again, they were not even considered. Uh, agencies showed, you know, parents surveyed across the Canada, 43% said they were very or extremely concerned about their children's mental health. And the, that rate, well, it jumps up to 61% for parents who have children with disabilities. And again, the majority said they were worried about their child's loneliness. And I can tell you firsthand that the isolation felt by children, uh, in this case, I'm taking intellectual disabilities as just one of the examples. It could be physical disabilities, emotional disabilities, that kind of thing. But, or, you know, behavioral challenges. But the challenges are just massive. And one of the things that uh, I talk about in the show time to time is Special Olympics. And one of the features of the hallmarks of Special Olympics, the characteristic, is that it provides a bridge to the wider community for children and adults with intellectual disabilities. This is where their community is. This is where they socialize. So Special Olympics done a fabulous job trying to overcome the restrictions in terms of making connections with some fabulous, you know, online programs and online ideas about connecting. But it's not the same as getting together in person, whether you've got an intellectual disability or you do not. But this is one of the big concerns that these kids were not even considered when they made the decision to lock down. And this is so typical. It's not that the politicians are bad people at all. I'm not suggesting that. But when I tell you that the healthcare outcomes generally for people with intellectual disabilities are far worse and measurably worse than the general population, I'm telling you, it's not that they don't care. They don't even consider them. The likelihood of getting COVID and severe reaction to COVID is much higher for someone with a person. Uh, the stats are very clear now. Now we're through, uh, you know, quite a bit of the pandemic or at least a year and a bit of it. And we know now that children with an intellectual disability are far more likely to have suffered, to have contracted COVID. Well, that's not surprising because they have a lot of other comorbidities. It could be obesity for one reason. I mean, I could get into that. There's a genetic reason. The list goes on. So this is why I'm saying this besides bringing it to your attention, because I'm not going to ignore it. And I hope you don't either. But uh, it's been a tough year for a lot of charities for fundraising. So I'm in, I'm the chairman of the out in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia of the BC Special Olympics golf tournament. And I need some help with it. We need teams to, uh, to sign up. We need uh, sponsors. And uh, it's coming on after much jockeying around. We had to cancel last year's, had to cancel this one in June. So we're now going on September 10th. And you can get more details. I'll post it up on mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca. If you've got a business that you can help sponsor, or you're an individual, uh, you know, that kind of thing, well, your help is severely needed. So I'll put that information up for you. You can get it. But my point, my bigger point is, this is the group that is so regularly not even considered in public decision-making. You can change that. Time now for the quote of the week. Well, I'm hoping through this program or maybe some other avenue, you've become familiar with the work of Thomas Sowell, one of the English-speaking world's best-known economists. He was born in South Carolina, brought up in poverty in Harlem. I mean, the author of so many books. I've read many, many of them. And a National Humanities Medal recipient for innovative scholarship, which incorporated history, economics and political science. Thing I love though also is that he's such a gifted communicator. I can't tell you how many times I sit back and go, I wish I could say something that eloquent. Which brings me to today's example and it's controversial. I mean, but it would be difficult not to notice how many times over the last several years politicians try to atone for the sins of the past by making an official apology. I mean, the list is a long one. And some definitely more poignant than others. But of note, while at the same time, we make excuses for people's actions today, or as Professor Sowell puts it in quotes, have we reached the ultimate stage of absurdity where some people are held responsible for things that happened before they were born, while other people are not held responsible for what they themselves are doing today? My quote of the week. 
I'm very uh, pleased to welcome back to the show Nick Auden. He's the head of Preferred Share Research at Capital Light. Uh, Nick, first of all, thanks for taking the time with us. And uh, there's no shortage of things to talk about, but I, I got to start with the $64 trillion question with you because it has an impact, and we'll get to that, how it impacts preferred shares, people looking for income, uh, that kind of thing. But what's your outlook for interest rates? Well, Mike, thanks for having me back on. Um, so our, our outlook for interest rates is obviously we expect them to be higher, but I think what sets us apart from the, the rest of the investment community is just the rate of change and how fast that it will actually happen. So mainly the big banks and economists are calling for interest rates. So they expect the Bank of Canada to raise interest rates twice next year. And I'm more of the opinion that's a bit more aggressive. And we're actually seeing that aggressiveness um, than in the preferred share market overall, where they're expecting by the end of 2023 that we'll be close to 1.75 overnight rate, which is actually at the neutral point um, for the Bank of Canada rate. And we think that's ahead of the curve and much faster than should be. And we actually even saw this this week where growth fears started to creep into the market where there was a major sell-off on Monday and it somewhat continued within the, the fixed income where the five-year yield, which uh, affects the preferred share market the most that I follow all the time, uh, came crashing down from close to 1% down to 0.8% overall. So one There's of the so- things we think... Sorry? No, go ahead, please. So one of the things we, we think about is just uh, what's being ignored. Is everyone is talking about inflation. Uh, is it transitory? Is it permanent? Um, but what the real thing that we should, I think we should be looking at is what's growth supposed to look like uh, in the Canadian economy. So one that I was just examining more after the Bank of Canada released its monetary policy report is what their expectations for what GDP will be by 2023. And I know we're going to see big prints coming up uh, in 2021, 2022 because of this base effect. But I decided to look at it on, well, what would our annualized growth be from 2019 to 2023? And what I found just doing the simple math is that the annualized growth was supposed to, is expected to be from the bank 2.3% annualized. And to give a reference, uh, before COVID, from 2012 to 2019, we we're about 2.06% annualized. So we're not actually growing that much faster. It's just we're coming off what they like. They're saying with the base effect is that economy shut down and all that. But the interesting one is if you dive more deeply into that 2.3% annualized growth um, and you see what's happening is actually a major inventory build. So because of COVID, we had this big drawdown and we've seen it in the supply chain uh, affecting it overall. So we're going to get this nice benefit uh, of inventories that are becoming a negative drag on GDP to a positive contribution. And so the same thing happened after 2008 when we're going into 2010, 2011. So we had these big GDP prints, but it didn't lead to significantly higher rates quicker. So that 2.3% goes down to about 1.9% annualized growth if we remove uh, the the inventory build. But then you throw in top of that, that $4,000 average savings uh, that the Canadians have ha- the Canadians have that will be spent that the banks focus on we, internally with our economist Chantal Shevin, uh, we've actually talked about like these just to us represent uh, bridge loans that oh this is going to get us through this tough time period but what's on the other side of 2023 because I think a lot of people forget in 2019 our our growth was actually slowing down and we were already there's talks that the Bank of Canada might have been cutting rates and this is nothing related to COVID just what growth outlook was going to be. Well, I'd say a couple of things there is that one is that I I do think people have forgotten that as we came in 2019, but even before that, uh, we had, uh, you know, very weak economic growth. The numbers were uh, were poor. We had huge drop in capital investment, as an example, uh, you know, which is a a foreshadowing or at least one of the fundamentals of economic growth. Uh, So, yeah, it was a very weak economy. So what's happened since, as you say, now you compare to 2020, where, of course, the COVID had so many restrictions, we'll still get those restrictions kind of dynamics, you know, especially thanks to Ontario, our biggest economy provincially, uh, you know, still going to have an effect for a while. So, of course, the numbers look a lot better. But the really interesting part is that the Canadian economy is growing because so much money has been pushed into it because the Bank of Canada's kept interest rates artificially low. Uh, you know, so the really interesting dynamics at play here. But when you step back, you're not seeing the long term fundamentals like we're not seeing productivity growth. 
You know, we're not seeing yeah. the Canadian the investment in productivity. Even we invest, what, 60 cents per Canadian worker. U.S. is investing a buck for everyone. Well, we're going to fall behind them there. We fall behind them in innovation. We fall behind them in research and development. So, yeah, it's a very interesting scenario. But let's let's take that back to the preferred share market. And again, uh, well, sorry, I want to make sure everybody's still on the same page with us when we talk about preferred shares. Can you give us the one minute on a preferred share as an income producing vehicle? Yeah, so a preferred share is a like a combination of a bond and a common stock. Where the idea is like it's like a bond where it has a, a max price, so its par value is usually twenty five, uh, and it pays like a stock. It pays a dividend income instead of interest income, like a bond. So when you're looking at preferred shares and you see its yield, um, one thing you have to think of is it's a tax beneficial yield. So if you see a four percent yield or five percent yield on a preferred share. If you're comparing it to a bond, one of the things you need to think about is the dividend tax credit. So what you want to do is actually gross up the yield by 1.3 times because that captures the tax credit and then compare it to a bond. So that 5% paying uh, preferred share is really like buying a 6.5% paying bond, which there's not many of them overall. And there's also great dynamics for just retail investors in general for the preferred share market. It's, It's only about a 67, 70 billion market overall. So it's very tiny. Just to give a reference, this RBC stock alone is almost twice the size of the entire preferred share market. So that actually keeps institutional investors away. So it's just this tiny market that Canadians can benefit from and get these juicy yields that the big boys essentially can't. Yeah, and it's, again, just to reemphasize, so you can get a better yield. Uh, they have, um, they're, they're safer, considered generally safer than a regular dividend because if they're going to pay dividends, they've got to pay the preferred one first. They can't pay the common unless they pay the preferred. And then the other thing you're alluding to, which is, of course, a key component, is that there is something called the Canadian Dividend Tax Credit. And, and once again, let's, let's do a quick equivalent uh, again um, you know, for that. So let's say I've got a, and I'm going to use an easy number, I've got it's like a 5% interest. What's that the equivalent, like a preferred, sorry, I get a 5% preferred dividend. Sorry, let me back up. 5% preferred dividend, what would I have to get in interest to equal that after tax? Yeah, so that'd be about 6.5%. And, a half percent. and yeah. I, I ran a screen in Bloomberg looking for how many bonds there are that would provide anything equivalent. And there is only one uh, in all of Canada. So unless you're lucky enough to get that one, you're going to be accepting much lower yields to be in uh, bonds right now. And let's also go to this. What what kind of, uh, when you're looking at yours, and this is what you do at Capital Light Research, you look across this marketplace and get, you know, you have an expertise in this marketplace. So let's say I'm looking for a conservative preferred dividend. What kind of percentage would I get in the dividend? It, right now, because they've run up since we last talked, they're around four mm. to four and a half percent uh, overall. And so I'd have to get a 6% in my bank account to give me the same after tax. Basically, that's a general number, I know. But, you know, yeah. if I get 4.5% in my preferred, just to make sure people are clear, because you get a dividend tax credit, great. I'd have to get a savings account with 6%. Well, sorry, that's not available. Or a bond, yeah. as you say. Yeah, no, exactly. And then within there, there's um, multiple different types of preferred shares. So in general, if you're looking for a safer one, there's ones that are called perpetual preferred shares, and those are ones with a, a fixed coupon, so it never changes. So it's the one that's most like a bond uh, overall. But then there's also interest rate sensitive ones, and this is something we talked about last time, is that yeah. they're some of the ones that are best for protection against inflation overall. So these are floating rate preferred shares that reprice their, their coupon and dividend. Uh, it can be monthly or quarterly, just depends on the preferred share. And then there's ones that are rate reset preferred shares, which reset every five years. I like to think of them as a mortgage because mortgages are priced off of a five-year uh, government account of security, and that's what they are. So every five years, it resets based on a predefined um, formula that's given. And it's that's one of the things is that they're a great inflation protection um, investment overall. So l- last time we were actually talking, I was saying I really like the floating rate preferred shares because essentially it was, we're almost, we were basically at a zero uh, interest rate. I think it was at like 0.35% when we were talking. And now uh, for the five years, sorry. And then it went up to 1%. It's now at 
0.8%, but much higher. And we've actually seen them outperform. So that they're up about 36% compared wow. to just the TSX, which is up uh, 14% over that time. And again, if you're a bondholder, remember that if interest rates go up, bonds go down. Well, long-term bonds are down 4%. So we saw this rare situation that we call like a capital structure arbitrage because in theory uh return should be that common stock have the best return because you're taking the most risk then preferred shares then bonds but this was just this distorted art um uh, opportunity and again it's because it's such a small market if if the big institutional players could play in this market such returns like this shouldn't happen now now going forward we don't expect these that 37% to continue because we've seen just such a drastic run up. And it goes back to the earlier point that what's being priced in to the market. So like we said, the preferred share market is pricing in that we are going to get to this uh, neutral rate uh, from the Bank of Canada, which is 1.75. And right now we're at 0.25. So that's something that we're a bit concerned on uh, overall, where we'd be probably making more of a suggestion this time around that you should be looking at maybe switching and playing more defensive and going into uh, perpetual preferred shares that are less interest rate sensitive because they have that locked in continuous coupon no matter what interest rates are. I'm talking with Nick Otten, head of preferred share research at Capital Light. It's an area that if people are looking for income and uh, they're really having a real problem with you know what a, a short-term bond is or what they might be getting at the bank, et cetera. This is an area that you should examine. And Nick, as I say, is head of preferred uh, share research at Capital Light. Nick, uh, give us a couple of examples, as simple as that. We only got a couple of minutes left. I want to sort of tease, not tease, but whet people's appetite to maybe look for some more. Yeah, so one of the things we like to specialize in is there's three main ways to get returns in preferred shares. So movement in the interest rate, so higher interest rate because of inflation, that's going to help these preferred shares that are tied to the five-year yield. Um, It's fund flow, so more people getting interested, so more money coming in. And then the last one that we actually focus on the most is uh, company-specific events that help actually get more return because it juices up the return from benefiting from the other two situations. But one, just a a great one that we like right now is related to um, a a REIT, so Artist uh, Real Estate Investment Trust. So it's the only real estate investment trust in Canada that issues preferred shares. Now, the company has gone under uh, activists that's come in and removed the, the poor management that was in there in the past. And one of the things the management team wants to do, the new one, is change the corporate structure from uh, a closed trust to an open trust. So changing that without going into a lot of detail, it just under a closed, they could have preferred shares. Under an open, they can't have preferred shares. So these preferred shares are going to have to be redeemed. So we actually look at these as just like a short-term um, cash parking situation, like a, a, an investment account, because these preferred shares are going to be redeemed in two to three-year time periods. And you're looking at yield to maturities on these of 45 to 5.5%. And if you're looking at a GIC that's in place over the same amount of time period, you're looking at one, maybe 1.5%. So there's many different ways to trade and invest in the, the preferred share market. And that's where we're always looking to find and identify ideas. Well, that, that, that's a great example of that because, again, it doesn't get enough coverage. Uh, and, you know, not by you guys. You specialize in it, but generally you're not covered. So people won't be aware of that kind of an opportunity. You, as you say, it's sort of you remove some of the environment and look at the specifics of the company, and that provides an opportunity. Uh, give us another example, if you could, not necessarily of that type, but of another type. Um, so then another one that we like to do is we call it uh, essentially the, the second reset group. So what this is, these are rate reset preferred shares that reset in 2015, 2016, after the Bank of Canada cut interest rates overall. So this is a group we track because when they reset previously, it was below a 1% uh, five-year yield, which is important because there's a large group of rate reset preferred shares that we don't like that reset in 2018, that reset when the five-year yield was 2, 2.3%. So this is what scares a lot of people and this is what can creates confusion is that when they reset, people aren't always aware about the, what's going to change in their yield. So if you set reset at 2.3%, well, today, the five-year yield is 0.8. So you're going to look at a declining yield. So we actually like to focus on this one group um, that reset below 1% so that they have the smallest change in uh, yield. So one that we like there, and it's another great one, 
It was called Capstone Infrastructure. So this one was a smaller one in general, um, but it's got a lot of unique characteristics around it. This is actually, I, it's a private company. It was taken private by uh, um, a, a private equity firm, but the preferred share stayed public because it was cheap capital. Now, we've done the research, we've looked through all of it, and we found that the fund that's in should be wrapping up in a couple of years. And so the thing is, they own a lot of renewable energy. And these renewable energy sources are being bought at such low yields that we expect that this preferred share will actually have to be bought, like taken out, because it's going to be too expensive capital for its price it's taken out overall. And I have to leave it at, Nick, I'll have to leave it at that, and I'll get people to go to Capital Light capitallight.co.co, capital light, or sorry, a cap, oh, yeah, we're, sorry, we're give me capital one more time. Light, capital light research. .ca, or .com, sorry. We, yeah, yeah, we changed Capital that. Right Research .com, capital right research .com. Nick Auden, thanks for taking the time. Hey, by the way, one other note, just talking about uh, capital research, CapitalLightResearch.com, CapitalLightResearch.com. By the way, there's a free two-month trial for Money Talks people of Canadian Preferred uh, Share Research Report. I always love to do that because then people can get uh, a little more into it and do a little bit reading of the, for themselves. So it's a free two-month trial of Capital Preferred Share Research Report, triple W, Capital Light, but there's not two L's. It's Capital, I-G-H-T, Research.com, Capital, ightresearch.com. Take advantage of it. Free two months there. Time now for this week's shocking stat. You know, one of the things that's been a big surprise when you look at the economic numbers is how many people are unemployed, but then you see how many job openings there are. Stories of businesses not being able to find people to work are common. Maybe the mismatch could be uh, that they're not in the same geographical location. So one part of the country's got a big uh, unemployment problem. The other card has big demand. So that could be one reason. There maybe there's a skill mismatch. But one that most economists are talking about right now is that businesses can't compete with the level of government assistance. Now, we had this problem in Canada. I remember looking at all the help wanted signs early on in the pandemic, like a second quarter of last year. Then you figure it out. Well, CERB benefits represented about $12.50 an hour. And that means Really, if you're even paid $20 an hour, you are working for next to nothing after you pay work-related expenses. This week, by the way, a morning consult poll in the U.S. found that 1.8 million workers have turned down jobs citing generous unemployment benefits. Again, similar to what happens in Canada. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business found that 27% 27 of laid-off workers didn't want to come back to work when offered the opportunity because of receiving CERB benefits. This is all the background for my shocking stat of the week. And it is a shocker. This is, <laughs> excuse me. This is Illinois, where again, the unemployment raise, uh, rate rose above the national average, about 7.2%. But the average worker in Illinois earns $55,770 a year. Here's the shocking part. If the worker instead chooses to stay home, he or she could collect 51627 in related pandemic-related unemployment benefits. As a letter from the Illinois Chamber of Commerce wrote to the governor there, the problem is workers cannot compete, uh, employers can't compete with the approximate $35 per hour that unemployed workers have received over the last four months as a result of enhanced UI benefits and tax credits and stimulus payments. The state also exacerbated the problem. It used to be that you had to post a resume on the state's job site. Well, they eliminated that. So now what you've got is this. Employers have posted over 120,000 help-wanted ads on the government site. Only 38,000 people have posted their resumes. But come on, that is pretty shocking. Average worker earns about 56000 a year. And if you choose instead to stay home, you collect about 52000 a year. That's a shock. It's the old, if you pay some people, or if you pay people not to work, well, some won't. Let's bring Ozzy Jurek in here. Ozzy, I was thinking about you this week. And I was thinking about, I'm looking at really some mixed sort of numbers that are starting to come out in the last month or so on the real estate market. 
And I wanted to know what you're making of it. Are you thinking, okay, is this significant? Is it a pause? Is it a change? What? Well, you're quite right. Your, your, your antenna is correct. I think that certainly I'm in the long-term inflation camp, have been for 20 years. And I think long-term we will higher prices. But I think we're now going into sort of having peaked. We are taking a breather. And uh, particularly uh, when you look at, at uh, the different cities uh, across Canada, I mean, the Canadian real estate, real, <laughs> easy for me to say, the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Bank of Nova Scotia, they're all reporting that the market has softened since March. That's the third and the fourth straight months in all markets in, in Canada that have shown a slowdown. And then when you go inside some of the cities, like the city of Toronto actually has seen some price adjustments. The condo market mm. units in the 550 to 650 range, for instance, are selling for 20 to 30,000 less. In the Fraser Valley, Brian Roberts, big realtor out there, says single-family homes are down $50,000 in the last two months. So we're seeing a change. And what about cyclicality? Like, for example, uh, what's the summer normally like? Is this something unusual? Uh, you know, there might be a slowdown, but, you know, is this sort of consistent with past summers? Not you know, last year, of course, because you saw a yeah. big pickup. <laughs> absolutely. There's, there's no question about it that we are going usually, and although we're not pre-COVID, we had a couple of years where actually the summer went right through. But normally, we slow down in, the, in, in July. We go to the beach. Or we go, you know, it, it is a natural thing. But that's why I always in my OSBAS compare ourselves to the last four years. And when you look up to June, the numbers took, still look very strong. But I believe that when I look at the early numbers in July, listings are, you know, seasonally lower than they would have normally been pre-COVID. So you have to take a look at 2018, 2019. And the other thing is you might look at condos that are down in, in, in active condo listings in Vancouver, but we have over 1,000 listings, say, over 2018. So I'm looking at all of the numbers to try and look at the market. Then you go to the United States, Mike. I mean, here we have the four straight months, says the National Association of Realtors, of falling uh, sales. And in Phoenix, our contact there says that MLS price reductions are down, I mean, are up by 102%. Mortgage applications are down 7%. In fact, mortgage application volume is the lowest level in almost a year and a half, both refinance and purchase. So I think we've seen maybe a buyer fatigue across the market in North America. And that's the key. Let me just one more very quickly uh, stat out of the states that I saw, and that is the predominance or the increase, I should say, in people paying all cash. Yeah, that is a mind-boggling. The broker Redfin reports that nearly one third, one third of U.S. homes the year were paid all with cash. I mean, Jesus. I mean, we're talking. Some of the brokers are reporting. I just sold a seven hundred thousand dollar home all cash, right? Yeah. And the e-file that came from the e-trade account. So the stock market is strong. I have more cash. I can pay cash. Victor Dare joins me. He's live at the trading desk. Vic, we started off with a Monday that had uh, you know massive declines across the stock markets, even globally. By the end of the week, we'd recovered all of those losses and more. I just want to know, what was your key takeaway then? What message did that market send you this past week? <laughs> well, um, I suppose you could say you got to be quick on your feet. Uh, yeah. One of the things certainly is that there is a an aspect to the stock market where people are trained to buy the dip. Anytime the market sells off a couple of percent, it's a bargain. Snap it up, you know. Uh, I mean, picture this. The previous Friday, the Dow had closed right on its lows. Uh, when I turned on my machines here at about just before 5 o'clock on the Monday morning, I saw that uh, the Dow Jones had opened or right around midnight, I guess, West Coast time, to the 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning, the Dow was down 800 points. Just like that, like bang. Just, there's no way really for me to get into uh, to that position. I don't want to sell into a hole. But really what happened here from the Friday previous highs down to the bottom on Monday and then back up to the Friday, we had 1,400 points down, 1,400 points back up, a 2,800-point round trip. And, you know, you could say actually the market was unchanged week to week, you know, if you missed that intervening yeah. uh, volatility. It, it was pretty wild. Mike, it was also in the crude oil market. We dropped $7, rallied back $7. That's 
that's a 10% swing uh, both ways inside of a week. The bond market was absolutely the opposite. You know, when stocks were going up, the bonds were going down and vice versa. And the Canadian dollar had a similar pattern to uh, stocks and crude, down hard and then jump back up again. So, yeah, a rock and roll week, that's for sure. Now, there were definitely trading opportunities, and I had a good week. I liked it. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> if you catch the right side of it. Uh, just let me come back to the Canadian dollar. And, sure, the Canadian dollar. Um, yeah. You know, Canada had a rally pretty steady from the lows of last year, certainly since uh, November of last year when Biden was elected, the Pfizer vaccine was announced. But the rally in the Canada had just been kind of this steady go, go, go up. And it had attracted, by the time we got to the beginning of June, a massive speculative long position in the Canadian dollar. I think some people saw Canada as a great way to play the commodity bull market. We've talked about that on the show last year. Anyway, Canada, when it started to weaken here as the U.S. dollar got stronger against everything throughout June, all of those speculators had to start selling their positions. So we had Canada take a, a, quite a, a sharp plunge, you know, relatively over the past couple of months. Um, and it's very much been sort of following the, the pattern of uh, the opposite side of the U.S. dollar and also following stocks and commodities. So, yeah, Canada... Um, down this week early and then back up again okay another quick one sorry i'm just firing them at you because time's never enough that's why they can go to victoradare.ca see the full analysis see the full charting victoradare.ca but vic just give me a quick uh, give me the one minute on gold yeah gold has been absolutely the opposite side of the u.s dollar this year like when the dollar would turn higher gold would turn lower and vice versa uh, so in the past week here or so, gold and the U.S. dollar kind of ignored, you know, the rock and roll that was going on in some of these other markets. So the U.S. dollar was a little higher. Gold was a little lower. And, uh, Mike, you just referenced my website. I would say this week I've posted more charts than ever because, you know, I mean, there's just so much to see there. Yeah. And I talk specifically about what I did this week. I made a real point of, you know, I did several trades and I kind of detailed why I did the trades and all that sort of thing. So for people that are interested in what trading is like at the nitty gritty level, there's a lot of detail. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, as usual, a little controver uh, controversial. Censorship is arguably, I think, one of the biggest issues in this country today, and it's manifesting in so many ways. I mean, it's a fundamental, maybe the fundamental right is free speech. But some people are losing their job for simply stating an opinion that's contrary to the popular narrative of the day. Then you got right through to the banning of Donald Trump, arguably the most powerful politician in the world, from Twitter and Facebook. And the pandemic has furthered the censorship issue. And this is really important with the Biden administration admitting to working with social media giants like Facebook to censor specific COVID-related content that they de deem inaccurate. Well, critics will argue that government working hand-in-hand -hand with social media giants has frightening potential of more censorship on different issues to come. And I think their fears have been widely validated when you start looking at the content of Bill C-36 in Canada, which would amend the criminal code are you ready for this to permit house arrest or electronic monitoring for any net internet user suspected on a reasonable ground of thinking they might commit an offense motivated by bias, prejudice, or hate? Come on, suspected? Might? As the Ontario Civil Liberties Association states, criminal conduct in this case is speech in which no actual harm to any specific person needs to be proven by the state. That's approved speech they're talking about. But what about Facebook and other social media sites censoring what's considered to be inaccurate COVID-related information? I mean, it's part of a bigger question that comes down to what's the best way to combat misinformation? Is it through censorship or through, as one of the English-speaking world's most respected free speech advocates, Jonathan Rausch states, the best way to fight misinformation and hate is through open dialogue, which then exposes the fallacies. You know what? That used to be one of the fundamental differences between democracies and totalitarian regimes. Totalitarian regimes are afraid of free speech. But how a democracy used to handle it is, let's get the dialogue going. Let's have more information. Well, that seems to be uh, under threat right now. And even leaving aside the right 
to free speech. It's important to note how often the consensus is wrong. Look at the effort to shut down any talk that COVID started with vir uh, the virology lab in Wuhan. Facebook actually banned any mention of it. It's only when the Biden White House was forced to acknowledge the possibility that they rescind the ban. If we went back further, spring of last year, White House Chief Medical Advisor Anthony Fauci stated unequivocally that, in quotes, the typical mask you buy in the drugstore is not really effective in keeping out the virus, end of quote. Well, come on. If you had disagreed, said no, masks are incredibly important barrier to contracting the virus. Well, Facebook and the Biden administration would have censored you. There's been similar about face when it comes to many other aspects. I'll give you an example. Contracting SARS-CoV-2 from surfaces. Well, now the Center for Disease Control says there's less than a 1 in 10,000 chance, keyword being less, i.e. next to impossible. But if you said that last July, Facebook would have censored you. So many other examples in healthcare and other subjects where the consensus proved to be wrong. I'll give you one of my, just one of my favorite examples. Early 1980s, Robert, Robin Warren and Barry Marshall of Australia isolated the bacteria Helicobacter pylori, not bad for pronunciation, from patients with, ul uh, with ulcer disease. They concluded that the bacteria was the cause of duodenal ulcers. Well, at the time, in quotes, every medical professional knew that's not the case. They were caused by stress, diet, and other factors. It's an incredible story. They were pilloried for this. In 1984, frustrated by the lack of acceptance of the discovery, couldn't even get research grants to fund this further. So, unbeknownst to anyone, Marshall decided to infect himself with the bacteria. And yes, he became severely ill. He then treated himself with antibiotics and fully recovered. But it took 20 more years for widespread acceptance of his findings by the medical establishment. And in 2005, Warren and Marshall were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine for their discovery. As I said, it ultimately comes down to free speech. And the best way to combat misinformation and hate, is it through open dialogue, which then exposes the fallacy, or is it censorship? And with one final caveat, beware the consensus. Dr. Arnold Aberman, former dean of the University of Toronto Medical School states, be very suspicious of those who want to cut off debate with, this is against settled science. Appealing to authority is a sign of weakness, not strength, end of quote. Hey, I want to make sure that you're visiting with me on mikesmoneytalks.ca or you go and join us with uh, daily updates on Twitter, Money Talks Tweets, or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. And my goal there is to expand the conversation, maybe give you some information that the mainstream is not following. It might be in the form of a quote. My goal is not to change anyone's mind. My goal is to enhance the level of information, maybe challenge some of the censorship of the day by getting a broader conversation going. I promise you'll be the better for it. Mike'sMoneyTalks.ca or go to Money Talks Tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.